It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Deborah Tannen is an expert when it comes to women's friendships. In her book, You're the Only One I Can Tell, Tannen deconstructs how women friends talk. For the book, she interviewed girls and women ages 9 to 97. Here are a few things she heard. My friendships with women are as essential as air. My women friends are the most sustaining thing in my life. But I also heard comments like, I find friendships with women difficult terrain to navigate. And one of the reasons people gave me was, women don't let you be different. Today, Tannen explains how the language of friendship for women and men brings friends together and sometimes pulls them apart. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. What makes a really close friend? And what are the differences between men's and women's conversations? Deborah Tannen, who teaches linguistics at Georgetown, unravels the joys and complications of friendships. From chatting and teasing to confiding, arguing, and ghosting, she describes the patterns of communication and miscommunication that affect friendships at different stages of our lives. Here's her talk from the Ideas Festival stage. Let me start with a conversation that was reported to me. So a woman told me she was talking to her friend on the phone. Uh, sorry, she talked to her son on the phone. Recent college graduate, but now he's living on his own across the country. And she was asking him about a friend that he had that she knew pretty well. And she asked him, um, have you talked to Mike lately? And he said, yeah, I talked to him yesterday. Well, how is he? I don't know. But you just talked to him, didn't he say? No. Nope. Well, how's his work? I don't know. How's his girlfriend? Don't know. Well, what did you talk about? Football. Did you only talk about football? No. Soccer, too. This captures a bit of how conversations that tend to take place between women friends and tend to take place between men friends tend to be different. And I always say tend to, as some of you may know, I've been writing about gender differences since way back when I wrote a book called You Just Don't Understand, Women and Men in Conversation. Uh, There's a tendency for people to take patterns that have been observed and described and think of it as everybody, all women, all men. Nothing is true of all anything. Uh, In addition to our gender, we have influences of ethnic background, regional background, kind of work that you do, age. Um, And I've written a lot about all these different conversational style influences. So there's many influences other than gender. But gender is a big one. Um, Conversation among women friends, it would be pretty unusual not to know what's going on with her, uh, her work, her, her relationships. Uh, But I read this example in front of a a group, and a guy came up to me after, and he said, you know, it's true of me and my wife, too. He said, "Um, you know, we have this couple. We're really good friends. We see them regularly. Uh, And then my wife's friends with the wife, and I'm friends with the husband. And one evening, my wife said to me, isn't that terrible that they're getting divorced? And I had no idea. He said, we play tennis every week, but the topic of his marriage never came up. 
And that would be unusual for the conversation among friends, among uh, women friends. Um, and going back to, again, this book you just understand and over the years of studying gender patterns in relationships, the tendency is for talk to be a bigger part of women's friendships. So you get together, you have coffee, you take a walk, and you talk, and you talk about what's going on in your life, and, and you talk about other things too. Uh, the tendency for men and boys is to be more focused on the activity. So you get together to do something, and you talk while you're doing it. But the focus tends to be more on the uh, activity, like playing tennis. Um, so the fact that women tend to talk more often, at greater length, and about more personal topics is part of what makes the friendship so uh, gratifying and fulfilling, but it also can make it more complicated. And that's some of what I'll be uh, talking about today. Um, men that I interviewed tended to say things about, if you asked a woman, when's the last time you talked to your best friend? And maybe I'll ask you right now. How many of you talked to your best friend within a day? within a week, and I say talk could also be texting an email, uh, within a day, within a week, within a month. How about within a year? Hasn't been for a year. Well, nobody, because now you can do it with Facebook, so that kind of that kind of counts. Um, but more unusual uh, for, for men than for women. So, yeah, what I'm saying, my remarks today will be based on this book I wrote quite recently called you're the only one I can tell, uh, which is focused on women's friendships, but I do compare it in many ways to men's friendships. Uh, and it was very interesting to me that often some women told me they preferred friendships with men, and one of the reasons was you don't have to talk all the time. Um, I heard very uh, praise and, and, and quite effusive comments about women friends, so comments like, my friendships with women are as essential as air. My women friends are the most sustaining thing in my life. But I also heard comments like, I find friendships with women difficult terrain to navigate. And one of the reasons people gave me was, women don't let you be different. So there's kind of a classic conversation, you know, I have this problem, and your friend says, yeah, I know the same thing happened to me. And that makes you feel like you're not alone in the world and somebody understands you and that's very satisfying. But one woman commented to me, if my friend says I have a problem and I say that's not a problem for me, she says, don't put me down. There's kind of an expectation that you have to be the same. I interviewed about 80 women and a few men and some trans uh, women about their friendships and this one woman said, there's almost an expectation of difference among men, and she found that more easier to deal with. And she said, you know, I kind of feel like gay men are my, are my girlfriends, uh, and my best friend is a gay man, and there's, maybe that's another book to write. I have a bit to say about it in this book, but close friendships between women and gay men is actually, are actually quite common. But talk can be both the reason why you treasure the friendship, but also it can be uh, one of the most difficult things. Uh, so a woman commented to me, and this is a very painful situation that I'm sure many of you have um, experienced. 
she said her, her really close friend had recently passed away. And she said, you know what the worst thing is? I can't call her up and tell her how terrible I feel about her dying. Because that is the sort of conversation she would have when she something really made her feel really bad about. I teach at Georgetown in Washington, uh, and I teach a class called Cross-Cultural Communication. I actually don't teach gender. For me, the gender pattern is part of many other cultural differences. And every week I have students describe some interaction that they had, and then they analyze it in terms of the kinds of things that we've talked about in class. So I'm going to read you a description that one of the young women in my class wrote. She said, Saturday night after a party, a group of us went to Matt's house to hang out before we went home to bed. I and the other girls proceeded to sit down on the couch, and we began talking about the night, what we thought was fun, what we wished had happened. I was in the middle of giving my friend Sarah advice about a boy when all of a sudden the coffee table was pushed out of the way and the guys began to wrestle, throwing each other on the couch, pushing each other off the chairs. It was funny for me to see my big guy friends wrestling as if they were five-year-olds, but it also struck me that this is how we chose to relax. The girls began talking and the guys got up and started play fighting. Uh, and now this is a pattern, again, that I've described and many others have too, that often for, for boys and for men as well, a kind of play fighting is a way of showing affection. And it could be verbal play fighting like teasing and playful insults, which sometimes women take personally and literally and that can create confusion in conversations. Um, so she said, it was funny to see my guy friends acting like five-year-olds. Well, she and her friends were acting like five-year-olds too. They were acting like five-year-old girls. Uh, and that is a very common pattern that has been described, that girls will tend to sit and talk, and they look directly at each other, kind of keep looking at each other to talk. And, and real more typical for the little boys and for older men also is when you're talking, kind of look around the room. And that's something that can create confusion in conversations between women and men. I was on a panel yesterday about arguing and um, what's a good argument, what's a bad argument. And I kept thinking, but we have to talk about patterns of difference, culture as well as gender. Um, and I think of a, a, again, young woman who told me she'd have a problem with a boyfriend, she'd want to talk about it, and he would lie down on the floor, close his eyes, put his arm over his eyes. And she felt going to sleep, <laughs> Let's have a conversation here. And he said, no, 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 go ahead, I'm listening. He said, usually I'll look around the room and I could get distracted, so if I close my eyes, I can concentrate better on what you're saying. Uh, and this is actually one of the themes through so many of the books that I write, um, that she, once she understood that that made sense, what he said, she decided she was not going to take offense anymore. However, she talked to him about it, and the next time that they had that, kind of conversation, he sat up and he looked at her and she said, how come? And he said, well, now that I know why it means something to you, I'm going to try to do it. I can't guarantee that will always be the outcome of um, understanding, but it can be. Um, comfort of talk. Um, a woman reported to me, she remembered when she had little kids, just knowing somebody knew, knows what's going on with you can be comforting. This is the story that she told me. Uh, so she's home with her toddler. She has a neighbor who's got a toddler about the same age. 
She said one day her neighbor called her up. Her little boy had dropped a jar of mayonnaise on the floor and then spread the mayonnaise all over the floor and then added eggs to it because he was going to make a cake. And she said that the neighbor just left the mess and came over and we just drank coffee and commiserated. And you would think, well, that's no help. Why didn't she go over and help her neighbor clean up the mess? It was a big help just to know somebody else is going through a similar, uh, in a similar situation. Uh, and there's a particular kind of talk that we often, uh, women and often engage in. And it's, again, something that I wrote about way back in, you just don't understand, that was picked up a lot. We call it troubles talk. So think of this conversation between a woman and a man where she's telling about a problem and he tells her how to fix the problem. And that's something that, again, was picked up a lot from that book because people recognized it. And what a lot of uh, comments at the time were, well, tell him you don't want to know how to fix it. You want to just be understood. You want him to just say, I understand. But, you know, at the time, and I said that as well myself, but I really don't think that's exactly right. Uh, That little anecdote that I read you from the student in my class, she actually said, I was giving my friend advice about a boy. So it's not the case that we don't want advice. I think the difference is she didn't want it right off the bat. So had she been talking to a friend about the problem, the friend might say something like, oh, why do you think he said that? And then, and then what did you say? And then what did he say? And what do you think you might do? And what do you think he'll do if you say that? And for one thing, you need that information in order to know what advice to give. But the other thing is just being willing to take that time to ask your friend about what's going on in her life, to show that kind of interest in what's going on in your friend's life. That in itself sends what I call a meta-message. So message is the meaning of the words, but meta-message is what it says about the relationship that you talk in that way, at that con- in that context. So there's a meta-message of caring in being willing to talk about your friend's problem. Um, and immediately giving the advice shuts down the conversation. And in a way, starting that kind of conversation was the point in addition to getting advice. Um, Another kind of common difference between women's and men's conversations, um, have you ever seen two little girls and one is whispering in the other's ear? I actually collect pictures from all over the world of two little girls, one is whispering in the other's ear. It's very unusual to find two little boys, one's whispering in the other's ear. Play fighting, hitting each other over the head. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Uh, Now, at this point in my talk, I often say I've never encountered a picture of two little boys, one whispering in the other's ear. Well, one time I gave this talk, two people sent me pictures of that. And and I was glad because it's a reminder we're not talking 100% and 0%. We're talking tendencies. It is less common. Um, And so the secrets are often... Not that with little kids, the secrets are often not that important. They'll say, hey, tell me, I have a secret, and then what they say is really pretty unimportant. But the fact of telling the secret <clears throat> is a meta-message of friendship. 
So for girls and women, often your best friend is the one you tell everything to, where for the little boys it might be the one you do everything with or the one who will stand up for you if there's a fight. Um, Women that I interviewed, and I always ask, well, what makes a really close friend? A close friend is someone who knows things about me that others don't. Uh, If she's a true friend, I tell her everything I think and everything I feel. Um, There was one woman I was interviewing, and older woman. I should say the women I interviewed ranged in age from 9 to 97. And the 97-year-old is still alive. She celebrated her 100th birthday. Um, So she said about um, at one point about a friend, she's not that good a friend. Um, I wouldn't tell her about my son's problems. And then at another point in the conversation, to him, another friend, she said, she's not that good a friend. I wouldn't tell her what I had for dinner. <laughs> you can kind of understand about telling about your problem or your son's problem, but why what you had for dinner. When you think about it, closeness is a matter of being interested in the little details of your life. So this end-of-day conversation... Uh, And again, this comes up in relationships between women and men. uh, And very much in, I also wrote a book about mothers and daughters called You're Wearing That. (laughs) And about sisters. And this pattern of, I can talk about anything. Uh, One woman commented about her mother. Who else can I tell I got a good deal on toilet paper? (laughs) Being interested in those details, those meaningless details of your life, is one of the things that has this meta-message of caring. Uh, um, So, and by the way, um, I have a lot to say. I have a chapter on social media and how social media uh, affects friendship. There was a, uh, people very often complain, why do people send pictures of food? (laughs) One woman said, all that stuff out there, an older woman, all that stuff out there that nobody needs to know. I don't care what somebody had for dinner. But the truth is, if it was a close friend, you would care. Uh, at the end of the day, your friend might say, and I did this, and I did that, and then I met so-and-so for dinner, and this is what we had, or this is what I made for dinner tonight, and it turned out really well, or something went wrong. So I think a lot of what we're doing on social media is just we're making more public the kinds of things that we often were often part of our private conversations. Photos of food would be one part of that. The Aspen Ideas Festival only happens once a year, but the ideas on aspenideas.org are constant. This month, we introduced a brand new website that brings everyone the captivating conversations and remarkable speakers that define the festival. You can effortlessly explore a diverse range of topics and immerse yourself in conversations that inspire you to think deeper. On AspenIdeas.org, you'll discover ideas you didn't even know you were looking for. Log on to AspenIdeas.org and start exploring today. Let's get back to our featured talk. Here's Deborah Tannen. Um, You've heard of FOMO. F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. And that is why many of us check our phones all the time. You don't want to miss out. Something may be going on, and if you don't check your phone, you're going to miss out. Um, I've developed an acronym that's a little bit different that is very typical of women's friendships. 
phoblo, F-O-B-L-O, fear of being left out. And that's worse. With FOMO, you missed the party because you didn't check your phone in time. With phoblo, you're left out because you weren't invited. And that's worse. And it's much more typical of women's friendships, and again, more typical of sisters and of mothers and daughters, uh, again, referring to the other uh, research that I did and other books that I wrote, the feeling when women told me they were hurt, it was often I wasn't told something because of the role of secrets and knowing what's going on in your life as a sign of closeness uh, and because being included is so important. Um, There's a reason that girls and women are very sensitive to being left out. Girls will punish other girls by leaving them out. And when you think about it, if among friends you're telling secrets, you can't have friends there that aren't good friends. You can't have girls there you don't want to be friends with. And you know that leaving them out is a good way to punish them. If you're playing a sports game, you can have boys there that you don't like. Maybe assign them a really rotten position. Treat them badly. But not so much locked out. And little kids are really creative about leaving kids out. Um, a colleague of mine, her name is Amy Sheldon, studies ta- uh, little kids' preschoolers. And she taped this conversation among kids, little three little girls. So one little girl was trying to join the play of two others, and they didn't really want her. But you know, in preschool, there's kind of a rule you can't say, you can't play. So what one of the girls said to the one who wanted to play that she didn't like, she said, you can be the baby brother, but you aren't born yet. (laughs) Extremely clever. (laughs) Gave her a non-speaking part. (laughs) The more extreme version of leaving out is ghosting, and you may have heard this term, ghosting. I often think of it as cutoffs. You've been really good friends, and then suddenly your friend doesn't want to talk to you anymore. And I was quite struck by how frequently I was told this by women and very infrequently told this by men, that a friend who was a pretty good friend or a very good friend suddenly doesn't want to talk to you anymore. But most of the women that I interviewed had had this experience. And there are so many reasons, and I go into some of them in the book. Sometimes it's because... You were so close that the person gets uncomfortable that you know so much about them. Um, Sometimes it's you don't know. And this is one of the things that really fascinated me. When women told me they had cut off a friend, and the women I talked to had done both, they had cut off friends and they had been cut off. When they told me about having cut off a friend, they always told me why. When they told me about having been cut off, they almost always said they didn't know why. And that is so fascinating to me. And I think the reason is, if you tell the person why, it's like you're starting a conversation and inviting them to argue with you or to justify themselves. So you feel you have to, because talk is such a big part of women's friendships, ending the friendship means we're not going to talk anymore. Um, I had this happen, by the way, while I was in high school. So, as in, and, and again, not unusual. Many of the stories I heard were middle school and high school, although some were older as well. But when I was in high school, I was uh, part of a trio. There were three of us. We hung around together, very important, ate lunch together every day. Uh, And one day, Susan, one of the other two girls, 
stopped talking to me and never told me why. And it was really traumatic at that age. Nobody to go to lunch with. I turned out okay, <laughs> made other friends. But I mention it because it is um, so common and because I could experience, and many of you have as well, I'm sure, uh, how friendship is such an integral part of your life at that age that when it's cut off, you're kind of high and dry. The other major reason I was given for women being hurt, and again, mothers and daughters, sisters, uh, all different uh, relationships, but certainly friends, was not being told because knowing what's going on in somebody's life is a big element of friendship. And one woman put it this way, which I thought was very, very sweet. She said, when I tell somebody something personal, it's like saying, here's this little piece of me. That means I like you. But then she's got this piece of you. What she can do with it? And this is another one of the risks of women's friendships. Uh, when, and again, this is mostly middle school and high school, but it could be at any time. You tell something personal, you expect them to keep a secret, and they repeat it. Uh, maybe because they didn't realize it was supposed to be a secret. Um, maybe it came out inadvertently. Maybe it was email and it got forwarded <laughs> or CC'd in a way that well, shouldn't have been. Um, and sometimes it's just because they got mad and they actually used it against you. Um, so there's a real risk. Uh, one woman told me that her mother had given her advice. She said, never say anything personal to women who play bridge every week <laughs> or get their hair done every week. Because when they run out of things about themselves to say, they'll move on to talking about you. <laughs> and there's some truth to that. Because personal relationships is the perfect uh, topic for conversation. And it's true. If you run out of things about yourself to say, you're not going to talk about football, you're not going to talk about soccer, so you've got to talk about somebody, and so you start talking about other people. And, and this is one of the real risks in women's friendships. So gossip is a big, uh, a big topic of that. And it's something that women are often criticized for. But I feel very strongly that if you define gossip as talking about other people, most of the gossip that women do is talking about, it's not talking against. It can be very destructive if it's talking against, but most of it is not. Think even of your families. You know, you talk to your mother or your sister, or, and you ask how so-and-so and what are they up to, and it's a sign of caring. Um, but I have been told by women that one of the things that they prefer about friendships with men is he won't repeat my secrets. And I don't think it's because men are inherently more trustworthy than women. I think it's because they have nothing to gain by it. It's often said men are competitive, women are, are, are cooperative, and it's even attributed to me in my book, You Just Didn't Understand. Uh, I don't think that's true. But I think of a lot of what's going on is um, women are competitive about connection. You can be very competitive about who's, who knows what and who knows first. So, and you know this if you've got friends or sisters. If you tell one person first, they're going to feel special and the others are going to feel less special. And so that's why sometimes you'll do a group email. Or if it has to be voice-to-voice, -voice, you'll set up a conference call. 
Um, and so there's very a lot of competition about how close you are. How can you prove you're close to somebody? You know their secrets. So that can be another reason that people will uh, repeat those secrets. Um, I want to say something about one more aspect that tends to be different in conversations between women and conversations between men, uh, and it's indirectness. And I'm going to read you two, again, descriptions by uh, friends, about friends from students of mine. So they're very similar situations, but notice how differently they are handled. Uh, This is by the woman. On a couple of different occasions last week, I heard my roommates mention they wanted to have a party on Thursday. I didn't think much of it until Thursday afternoon when I realized I would be up all night writing a paper that was due Friday morning. I didn't want to be the annoying roommate that wouldn't allow a party, but at the same time, I didn't want distractions while I was trying to study for uh, prepare a paper. I was walking back, so think how you would handle it if this was your problem. I was walking back from class with one of my roommates, and I asked, So, what are you guys doing tonight? She responded, I'm not sure. We're thinking of having a party. What are you up to? I told her I had a big paper due on Friday. She responded with, oh, in that case, we definitely won't have a party. I told her it would be fine with me. But she restated they would not have a party, and that time I didn't resist. Um, And this is the kind of thing I've written quite a bit about. It's a kind of indirectness. You don't want to make a demand, so you start vague and you get around. She knew what their plans were for that night, but she asked. So you start vague and you kind of work your way into a solution and you don't make the demand the other person accommodates. Now, I want to show you how different the guys were. This is a young man. Similar problem. This is what he wrote. I couldn't help but overhear a brief exchange between my apartment mates this week. I was doing something or other in my room with the door open. One of my apartment mates was in the room, in his room, with the door closed, cramming for his organic chemistry test the next day. My other two apartment mates were watching the World Series in the common room, passionately yelling at every play. This went on for a while until the one studying opened the door and yelled, Guys, can you keep it down? I'm studying here. The response was, no. (laughs) The one studying followed with a quick, go to hell. The conversation concluded with a remark from the common room. It was, F you. And with that, the problem was solved. They lowered the volume on the television and mellowed out considerably. No one was mad, just a typical way of problem solving in Henley 60. (laughs) What I love about this is, it was said, and and I've said it myself, women tend to be more indirect. Yeah, that girl was very indirect. What are you doing tonight? Oh, that would be all right. But the boys are indirect too. If indirectness is saying the opposite of what you mean, or something other than what you mean, they said, no, go to hell, a few. But that wasn't what they felt. They were going to do it. They were going to accommodate. So it was a kind of mock opposition rather than mock um, agreement. Like, that would be fine, but it really wasn't. Uh, And I want to tell you quickly, I had an experience um, in a very professional situation with just something just like that happened, the women. Um, I appeared for a conference. I was going to be one of the plenary speakers. Uh, The organizer of the conference told me that one of the other plenary speakers, somebody we both knew, 
was not going to appear. And what she said was this. She said, you know, Judy isn't going to be here. Uh, she called me this morning and she said, I feel horrible. I'm, I'm coming down with something. I have a fever. But if you really need me, I'll come and give my paper. And she told me. And I said to her, I really need you to stay home and take care of yourself. And I said, that's wonderful. Can I use that as an example in my talk? And she said, yes, it was great. It was perfect. Direct communication. She experienced it as direct because it was clear. The meaning was clear. There was no way she was going to say to her friend, I don't care if you're sick. You get here and give that paper. Of course she was going to let her off the hook. But they both feel better if Judy didn't present it as a fait accompli. She showed her good intentions by saying, I could, if you uh, really need me, I could come. And then she gets told to stay home. Um, I want to leave time for questions, so let me just uh, conclude here. And obviously, there's lots more that I've written in the book, but these were some of the some of the highlights that I found in patterns in these friendships. So these these things I've talked about: the role of talk, the role of telling secrets, um, the role of personal talk, is one of the things that can make friendships between women deeply gratifying. Uh, I want to make it clear, too, I've talked a lot here about the problems that can arise, and there are many others that I discussed because you kind of want a book to help you with problems. Um, But there's also a lot that's wonderful. I have a lot to say about what's wonderful about friendships. So somebody said, does that mean if I give this to my friend, she's going to think I'm accusing her of all these things? Uh, No, there's a lot that's also really positive. But But friendships, like all close relationships, can be challenging. Um, And it really can help just to know that you're not the only one, that others are having similar problems. Um, And I should say also I have quite a lot to say about how just different conversational styles can create problems in friendships um, among women. Do you think a friend is somebody who should ask you personal questions, or do you think a friend is somebody who should just let you talk when you want? You know, if you want, you'll tell. That's one of many, many other conversational style differences that we talk about. But it's really great to know that sometimes it's nothing that anybody did but outside forces. And so I'll conclude by saying that is what happened with my friend Susan. And I'll tell you how I found out. Um, Shortly after high school, it was a high school friendship, shortly after high school and college, I kind of made up my mind, I'm just going to find her and ask her why she stopped talking to me. And I tried and I couldn't. She never came to high school reunions. Uh, Her college didn't have her. You know, women get married, they change their name. I couldn't find her. Um, And then the internet came around and I Googled and that didn't work either. Um, as soon as I made this commitment to write this book, I made up my mind, I am going to find her, because now it's research. <laughs> I have to figure out why she stopped talking to me. Well, I was Googling. Again, I'm not particularly good with that, and I wasn't finding it. Um, I actually had a draft of the book, and I hadn't found her. And I mentioned it to a friend of mine who happens to be really, really good at finding immigration records. And, uh, you know, if you want to know when your grandparents arrived, he can find the boat that they were on. I mentioned it to him, and I mentioned that I knew that Susan's Susan's family was from Iraq. I thought she was born in this country, but I knew that her parents and her older siblings were born in Iraq. 
So I gave them the name, more or less, when they came. So this was a Friday night. A Sunday morning, I have an email. He had found her brother. Again, men don't change their last name, so it's a little bit easier. He had found the immigration records, and she actually was born in Iraq as well. She was seven when she came. Her name was Suwad. She became Susan. Um, and because of various things, he was able to find her brother's email address. I composed an email to her brother. Are you the brother of Susan who went to this high school? He answered almost immediately that he was. CC to Susan. Different last name. Well, I began composing my email to Susan. And I was working really hard on it because maybe she still didn't want to talk to me. Maybe whatever I had done was so horrible. And while I was working, crafting this email, an email came from her. And an hour later, we're on the phone, 54 years after our last conversation, and I've told you my age, we're talking on the phone. And the first thing she said was, it was my brother that made me stop talking to you. Not that brother, a different brother. (laughs) And what she said was, it was a very traditional Iraqi family. So she was supposed to either be at school or in the library or home. She was hanging around with me. I was taking her to Greenwich Village. We lived in New York. And her brother had figured this out. And he said, if she didn't stop talking to me, he was going to tell their parents that she was doing this, that when she said she was in the library, she wasn't. And her parents had arranged a marriage for her older sister, and they wanted to arrange a marriage for her too. And she really wanted them to let her go to college. So she couldn't take that chance. And then she said, and you know, I think he was just jealous because you had so much influence over me because we were so close. Um, And I was so fascinated by that because I had already written a paragraph in the book that sometimes a young person who lives at home with older, you know, uh, parents or or, uh, step-parents, caretakers, um, sometimes it's the older Uh, people that make them stop talking to their friends, cut off a friendship. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes it's a friendship that is really negative, really has a bad influence. And then I said, and sometimes, although they may not realize it, sometimes they're just jealous that you're telling your secrets to somebody else. So that was a big relief, and now we're friends (laughs) again and uh, got together, all three of us. So that's a happy ending. And I think it's good to end this talk on a happy ending, so I will stop there. Um, so I think there are mics going around, and you have to wait to get the mic to talk. How about right up here? So when you talk about uh, indirect speech, what's the difference between indirect and passive-aggressive or manipulative? <laughs> so how do you not walk away from some of those conversations feeling like you were just played? I love that question. Um, <laughs> So much of what I write, and this goes, again, way back to my first book, which was not about gender at all, and most of what I've written is not about gender, but conversational style differences. I think manipulative is how we feel when somebody has a different conversational style. So if you expect directness, you expect someone to just come out and tell you, and they're confusing you, it feels manipulative. But think of that woman who said... Yeah, it was perfect, direct communication, because she knew exactly what was meant. 
So I'm not saying nobody's ever manipulative or passive-aggressive, but my concern, and again, this is everything I've done all these years, is that we often leap to psychological interpretations when what may be going on is conversational style differences. Um, So for people who are used to indirectness, it wouldn't feel that way. Um, And by the way, but indirectness can be confusing for people. Have you had a conversation? I'm thinking, again, this was was, uh, texting. One friend telling the other one, um, texting, we're going to go for a walk. Could we go a little bit later? And the friend saying, okay. Well, okay doesn't seem enthusiastic. Well, if you don't want to, we don't have to. No, we can. It really doesn't matter. And they went back and forth. If you really want to, we can. No, it's okay if we don't. And she said, we ended up keeping the time, and it was okay, but there had to have been an easier way to get there. (laughs) So it can be confusing even for people who think it's okay because you're so busy trying to figure out what the other one wants and accommodate that you kind of wish you were direct. But, yeah, so I would say... You don't always know because you might be dealing with someone with a different conversational style. So I would say start by asking yourself, is it that? And then maybe later see whether it's passive-aggressive. Yeah, there's a question over here. Do you find in friendships or the ability to create friendships, what we found is that I can sit and talk to somebody and know everything about them and never get anything back. So we've come to the conclusion that... I don't need those people in my life. Um, you know, I put something on the table. I think that's women, too. Put something on the table, and you put something on the table. doesn't necessarily have to be personal, but there's often not give and take. Yeah, that's, that. that's fascinating. This uh, reminds me of an example that I found uh, that was very, um, people kind of left at, from, again, not a gender thing. Women talking to a man she had met, and he's ten, he keeps telling about himself. And he talked about himself the whole lunch. And she's getting more and more frustrated. Finally, she said, why are you telling me this? And he said, I want to get to know you. (laughs) And it seemed insane. And I said, think conversational style. Maybe he thought that by telling you his personal stuff, he would would encourage you to tell yours. So it's possible, possible, that the person waits to be asked. There are some people who won't talk unless they're asked. Uh, and then again, as I said before, there's some people who feel it's terrible to ask, never ask, just wait for the person to volunteer. So what I would say is try asking <laughs> and then see if the person really doesn't ever want to do their part. Over here. Hi. Hi. Um, so I have this friend, and it's so interesting. Whenever I tell, he'll ask me how my day is, I'll tell him about a challenge I'm having, and at the end of it he'll say, well, I don't know what to say to you. And it drives me crazy because because I, I then I think, well, do I start prompting him before to where I say a little compassion at the end of this would be good or something? Do you have any ideas of what I could? Because I really do hate the, well, I don't know what to say. Yeah, and I think he's being very honest because... I think very often the reason both women and men and people of different conversational styles, we really don't know what to say if somebody is talking in a way we're not used to talking. So because it's less common for boys and men to just tell her about a problem like that, he's not used to it. It's not something he's experienced in. So I would say, yeah, sure, say, tell him the kind of thing he might say. Try this. (laughs) 
See how it works. <laughs> I'd love to know what happened to Susan. Did she go to college and did she get married? <laughs> Total happy ending. Yes, she went to college and she chose her own husband. And he was Jewish, but they were Iraqi Jews. Um, her sister, they picked an Iraqi Jew who lived in Israel. And she had to go to Israel. And it turned out, well, it's a good marriage. They're very happy. Uh, but she, she married an Eastern European, German Jew, which was quite shocking to the family. But that's America. <laughs> you mentioned that you were going to talk about social media. So we have a child that's going to college. She's 18. Do you have advice both for what we can impart to our daughter about how to develop intimacy uh, in a time where all communication seems to be on the phone and both advice for parents how to accept that their communication style for intimacy might in fact be meaningful, but it's on the phone. Yeah, I do have a lot. In fact, I have a whole talk I could give about social media, but there's 49 seconds left, so I'll need to be really brief. Um, but I think one thing is for the kids to realize that some of the things they're doing on the phone might be better done face-to-face. And sometimes that comes as a surprise, sometimes not. I'm not as worried about kids. I think they know how to have relationships that way. And the one thing that young people seem to be losing, and this is based on my students, is how to talk to people they don't know. Because when they find themselves in a situation where we might, you know, older people would have sort of chatted, they've got these things in their ears, they're looking at their phones. And it's partly because they want to check their phones, and it's partly because they don't really know what to say to people they don't know. But mostly I defend the kids. Uh, and I think parents are worried that kids are being rude. You're in a conversation, and they're doing, you know, check texting under the table, and that seems so rude. Often what they're doing is avoiding being rude to their friends because it's considered rude not to answer a text in a quick way. And the feeling is, uh, how can it be rude? It takes a little time. So wouldn't it be rude? The friend's saying, when are you going to be free to meet me? And you're going to make them wait for an hour just because your mother's telling a story? Just... <laughs> Just give a quick answer. I think I'll be ready in an hour, and what's the big deal? <laughs> so, again, a little bit of seeing from the other person's uh, point of view. Um, and, and for uh, older people often, you know, get on Instagram or whatever, wherever they are communicating so that you can stay in the loop that way. Do you do any of this with diplomats? Give them clues as to <laughs> when they're coming from different countries or whatever, how to deal with that? Yeah, that's such a good question. Uh, I, have, I haven't been asked to speak to diplomats specifically, though I've talked to many, many, many other groups, but I have written a bit about that. Yeah, it's something absolutely, yeah, uh, when often what American diplomats run into trouble because they think you should get right to business, and most cultures of the world, you don't do business with strangers, so you start by having a social conversation, feel like you're getting to know each other, and then you can start, and then you can do business. Um, and all kinds of things. Again, I haven't been able to get to all the details of conversational style that we talk about. Uh, just how long a pause do you wait before you figure the other person has nothing to say and you should start talking? It varies. Um, so a Japanese, a student of mine who wrote a dissertation on this, she timed 18 seconds pause as being quite normal and comfortable in conversation among Japanese. This is business meetings. Just 
put your watch on 18 seconds, you would be out of your mind. You'd have to start talking to fill that silence. And it can be little differences. So yeah, one book I wrote was New York compared to California. And that was one of the reasons that the New Yorkers were often perceived by Californians as interrupting. Because we, I say we, I'm from New York, as I said. You could probably tell. Because <laughs> um, we expect a shorter pause. Or maybe no pause. Because you don't want pause. A pause means the conversation's running down, and that's a bad thing. So you sort of peter out, and that's an invitation for the other person to overlap with you. Right there? I was wondering if these patterns of communication change with time. For example, you know, the notion that women are more indirect with texting and technology. Are women less indirect today than they were 20 years ago? You know, so much, I've been at this a while, and so much of what I've written. I would have thought would be different now, but it seems not to be. And again, my laboratory is the students that I teach at Georgetown. And many of them will say the first day of class, you know, that's so old. That was written in, you know, 10 years ago. That's ancient. And I say, great, go out and tape and let's find out. And they always come back and say it's exactly, it's exactly the same. Thank you. This has been so enlightening. I've learned a lot. Thank um, you. I wondered if you'd be so generous as to give us a little taste of what might be ahead in your converse, in your book about um, uh, women's relationships with gay men. Ah, <laughs> what women have told me, and again, thinking of my own, uh, my own best friend, um, I think it's a combination of a kind of frisson, a really, you know, sense of um, being with somebody of the opposite sex can be, um, have a, a charge to it that same sex doesn't. Uh, as part of it is there isn't that Tension because of the possibility of sex. Uh, I interviewed lesbians who told me, I think of one in particular I interviewed who said, she's found that she has better friendships with straight women or gay men because, again, among a group of lesbians, the possibility of sexual relationships complicates everything. And if one person in the group has a, a crush on somebody else and the other person doesn't return it, the whole group starts to feel these tensions. Um, so I think that's, that's one part of it. Um, and then another is the sense, I think there is a tendency, more of a tendency among gay men to talk about, do a kind of girl talk in a way that uh, straight men are less likely to do. So that's just a few, few thoughts. Anyone who wants to talk to me, I'm happy to stay around. I'll be out there. Deborah Tannen is a professor of linguistics at Georgetown University. She's an award-winning and prolific writer. Her latest book is You're the Only One I Can Tell, Inside the Language of Women's Friendships. She spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June of 2018. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our new website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keeleen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.